Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. And oh, do I see the chatters. Well, this show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history, and it will provide you with an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. And following the show, you can continue this discussion. And I'd love to see you continue this discussion on the Afrogenius.com and research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page. In fact, please like both pages. And you can also join the Afrogenius.com group on Facebook. Well, now, how many of you understand how to conduct African and Native American research? Well, tonight's discussion will focus on that very topic, African and Native American research. And I'm so happy to have genealogist Angela Walton Raji. Now, you know, Angela has committed herself to sharing information with the descendants of the freedmen of Indian Territory, which is now Oklahoma. She is the author of the book, Black Indian Genealogy Research, African American Ancestors Among the Five Civilized Tribes. The book serves as a guide to researching the history and lives of the 20,000 freedmen of Indian Territory who have been deleted from American history. She is also the author of the African Native American Blogspot.com and producer of the African Roots Podcast. So let me give a warm welcome to Angela Walton Raji to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Angela. Thank you so much, Bernice. I appreciate that very warm introduction. I'm glad to be here. Well, I am so happy to have you here tonight, Angela, because this is such a very important topic of which we probably don't talk enough about it. So why don't you just help us understand how did you get started? 
Well, it's been a very, very interesting journey for me. Um, it began with my own family history. Now, I grew up in a, in a border city, and what I mean by that, a, a city that's really on the border of Arkansas and Oklahoma. The city is Fort Smith, Arkansas. My dad's side is the Oklahoma side. My mother's side is the Arkansas side. And with Oklahoma being just so close, I mean, it's literally just a drive across the bridge from downtown the stories of Indian Territory and Choctaw Nation and Cherokee Nation, they were familiar to me. I heard these stories growing up all the time. And so it was just something that's common and it's something that you hear in that part of the country. Now, my great-grandmother Sally Walton died in the early 1960s. And, of course, you, you obtain things from a relative after they're deceased. And one of the things that our family obtained was her family Bible. And, of course, that Bible contained typical data such as uh, dates of birth, dates of death of various people. Some names I recognized, some I didn't. But almost all of them contained the names of individuals who were born and who died in Indian Territory. In addition, in that Bible, there was a piece of paper that was folded up, and it actually uh, was a land allotment document. It pertained to her land allotment in the Choctaw Nation, and the Choctaw Nation was stamped on that document. And this was folded up inside the Bible. So, we, you know, this is something that was nothing that was a surprise of any kind. Uh, but I still wanted to learn more over the years. And when I finally moved to this part of the country, this being Maryland, um, I decided to take advantage of being close to Washington and decided to see if I could get more documents from the National Archives. And that's when I discovered more about the family history that I did not know because I found my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather, my grandfather, as well as uh, an aunt and an uncle who were all on the Dawes Rolls. I obtained uh, just an amazing plethora of records, enrollment cards, interviews, birth and death affidavits, just so much information. And then I also realized, wait a minute, it's not just my family. I started recognizing the surnames of other people that I had grown up with whose families were in those records as well. And I knew something was amazing, something was missing. I didn't know that my great-grandmother, whom I knew in, in my young, younger years, I was uh, just a child and she died, but I didn't know that I had known someone who had been born enslaved, and there it was. She was born in the middle of the Civil War, and she was born a slave of someone in the Choctaw Nation. And I started looking at other documents and, you know, surnames of families that I knew in, in Arkansas and Oklahoma. And they, too, had a great-grandparent or, or an elder, someone in their family, that was also enslaved in Indian Territory. This history had never been told, and I realized I had to go and study and to learn a lot. So that was something that I committed myself to, learning the history, but also sharing the history whenever I could. Well, first of all, I mean, you are so fortunate. You said you started off with a family Bible with information, right. and, and you know, just to, to say that you have a family Bible is, is wonderful, but to also find this land allotment document of the with the Choctaw oh. Nation stamped on it, I mean, how wonderful could that be? I know I would love to have found a document such as that. 
And so with that beginning, yes, so with that beginning, uh, you then chose to continue to examine uh, the other names on the the various roles. So tell us more. So you you wrote the book. How did you come about writing this book? Well, um, I, I, as I said, I began to realize I was part of a community that was embedded in this amazing record set. And I began to see the surnames of people. And one unique aspect about my family or about my hometown, Fort Smith, Arkansas, is the second largest city in the state of Arkansas. It's literally due east of Oklahoma. But the city is fascinating because if you are on the north side of the city and you cross into Oklahoma, you enter the Cherokee Nation. If you're on the south side of the city and take another road and go into, cross into Oklahoma, you're in the Choctaw Nation. So here's a city that was a frontier city. It was also the, the seat of a federal district court that oversaw affairs in Indian Territory. But two nations are jutted right against the city. And mm-hmm. I recognized Cherokee records and saw surnames again that I began to recognize. And I realized, wait a minute, all these people come from this amazing community of people who were at one time enslaved by Indian tribes that had gone west. And not just the phenomenon of the fact that they had been enslaved, but here were records that were documenting interesting aspects of their history. And I realized, wait a minute, this has never been talked about. I also um, had been reading books, genealogy books, and what have you. And the few books that had been published that were dealing at all with Native American research, with Oklahoma slash Indian Territory research, never, ever, ever spoke about the freedmen. And as I began to look at the Choctaw freedmen, Cherokee freedmen, Muskogee Creek freedmen, Chickasaw Friedman and Seminole Friedman, the question arose in my head, how can you overlook over 10,000 enslaved people and never write a sentence about them, especially Mm -hmm. in a genealogical publication? How can you omit that? We're not invisible. I can imagine um, you raising that issue. (laughs) uh, That's why I realized, okay, no one has even put a sentence about it in any book then I'm going to have to write something about it. And a paragraph grew to multiple pages to multiple chapters, and that's how the book came to be. Oh, wow. Well, first of all, thank you so much for, for writing well, the book. It's something that I realized that just had to be done, as opposed to, I guess, sitting there in frustration saying, why aren't they writing about my people? I realized, I've got to write about my people. So uh, I, I just realized one has to respond. If you see a problem, sometimes you can be part of the solution. That's right. Now, I understand, I mean, you wrote your first edition in 1993, right. but you also went on to do a second edition. So what can we find in that second edition that wasn't in the first edition, and why did you decide to do that? Well, that's interesting because uh, one of the things that I realized, uh, and of course, as when you're a, when you're a child, 
you think the whole world centers around your house and your family. And then you get to be a little older and you realize, oh, you go to school, you meet other children, realize, oh, there are a few more families. So you think the universe centers around maybe your town. And then you realize, oh, we're part of a larger community. There's a whole state. Well, one of the things that I began to realize using that same analogy is that everybody doesn't come from Oklahoma, believe it or not. (laughs) So I realized, wait a minute. This is an interesting story that needs to be told, but are there possibly individuals in other states, individuals who don't necessarily share the same history that people in the Indian Territory had, but maybe other people where there were sizable African-American populations that came in contact with Native Americans as well? And I began to realize as I met people who were responding to my book that they had a story, and it was similar in the fact that we're talking about African ancestored people and the contacts that they had also with indigenous people. And I realized, wow, there is another story to tell. And so I had mm-hmm. to learn more. I had to get other records, other communities, and I found wonderful stories. And um, that's why I decided it's time that I expand it. It's time that I talk about some of the other communities and for me as a genealogist, to teach others how they can find their story and what kind of records exist for them to look at, because these records are wonderful. So beyond Oklahoma records, uh, let's just talk Mm -hmm. about what, what else have you found? Okay, well, there are, of course, the records, and we're talking about maybe Imagine a record set over 70,000 files, 70,000, I'll say files, because each file can have one person telling their story, but one person talking about 15 or 20 different people. Uh, 70,000 files. I'm referring to the records of the Eastern Cherokee. There are other records of the Mississippi Choctaw. There are other kinds of records and uh, that are Someone may refer to them as tribal roles, not really because every tribe doesn't have a role per se, but I began to realize there are records reflecting blended families, and when I say blended, I really mean individuals where you may find African ancestor people in the same community and many times the same household as uh, uh, in the same household living together as a family unit and you find them together. So I have found from New England coming down the coast, New York coming down the coast, uh, mid-Atlantic area going down the coast into the Carolinas, the Florida sweeping west through the Gulf of Mexico into the Mississippi Choctaws and points west. I have found records, and this is particularly a surprise for a lot of people, a lot of these records are the records that people are already using, the federal census. And I can talk about that certainly a little bit more in depth as well. I found uh, Native people and African-American people in standard census schedules, special Indian census schedules, all kinds of things, in addition to some of the other tribal roles that you find in the West and and in uh, Oklahoma and Indian Territory. But uh, the census is 
full of data. I have found school records, Carlisle Indian School, um, the Hampton Indian School at what was Hampton Institute at that time. So just wonderful, wonderful records. And much of the story can be documented farther. Yes. Well, you know, you mentioned the census and that the census mm-hmm. is full of data. So why don't you actually take us through uh, some information about a census or some census. You, you take us where we need to go to understand this. Well, you know, the census, the federal census is sort of the engine that drives genealogical research since we know since 1790 data has been captured and we know each year uh, different questions were asked. Now, basically, as far as Native American populations, it was pretty much sporadic in terms of enumerating people until the period immediately before and then immediately after the Civil War coming forward in time. Now, as genealogists, of course, we work with ourselves and go back in time. So, uh, and of course, we know the 72-year waiting uh, period before we can examine the census. So that means right now, this is 2014, we can look at 1940 census. Now, um, I decided to post something on my blog. I posted it uh, last night, and so people would have a chance to see it today. It's the latest post on my blog, um, and uh, my blog is African dash nativeamerican.blogspot.com. And so if any of your listeners can just just click it and take a look at it. I have examples on the post, which was uploaded uh, January the 29th, basic documents for looking at 20th century and 19th century Native American research. And all of the records that I've posted are strictly census to show you how available this is. Now, in 1940, for example, if you were dealing with a community that was a large community of, of people where most of the people were Indian, you will see that. And if people are looking at the blog at the present time, you'll see a family that I've documented. They live in what is now the Cherokee Nation, and you'll see the Paget family there. Everybody in the household is listed as Indian, capital I, little n. It's very clear. There's no code word for Indian. They were clearly documented. This is 1940 census, and you find this all over the country. Now, in uh, the 1930 census, which is the next image that you'll see, you see a blended family there. And you'll see a family, and I put deliberately different state census records on this particular blog post. So people can see, oh, it's not just Oklahoma. And if you look at that particular issue, that 1930 uh, image, rather, you see um, a community that's there, and you see this is Robeson County, North Carolina. And if you look over to the right, because they're asking information about birthplace of the person and their mother and father, and this is kind of different. You don't see it all the time. But for whatever reason, the enumerator did it in Robeson County. They put the person was born in North Carolina, and then they just said, okay, the father is mixed. Now, they don't say if he's mixed with white or mixed with with black, but you know that the person's father was a person of mixed ancestry. And then the mother, it just said, oh, she's Cherokee. And uh, this is kind of fascinating um, to see that. And this is a North Carolina image. Now, going further down, 
I went to New England, and on 1920, I pulled up a record, and this is a blended family. In this family, this is from Barnstable County in Massachusetts, and, and this is a Mashpee Indian community, and you see a blended family. The head of the house, George Anant, is clearly a person of African ancestry. It says he's black. And his wife and children are enumerated as Mashpee Indians. They're enumerated as Indian in that record. And that's a 1920 document. 1910 and 1900 are kind of unique years. Excuse me. I say that because those, those two census years were years in which the federal government decided to enumerate Indian communities in a special way. They ask the standard questions that you find, but you find the document not with 50 people that you usually see on a census page, but with 25. The top half, standard data. The bottom half is information pertaining to the Indian enrollment of that person or the Indian background. And I shared a document from the state of New York Suffolk County, so for any of your listeners who have ties to the state of New York, you know that's Long Island, and this is a community of people who are Shinnecock Indians. And in this particular um, image that I'm sharing from 1910, they ask a question on the special questions pertaining to Indians. Well, it's interesting because they ask the question, what percentage Indian are you, what percentage white are you, and what percentage Negro? This particular community listed on this particular page, it's very clear this is a biracial community. Every person who is enumerated, it says very distinctly, one half Indian, one half Negro. Another extra feature on that document from 1910, they ask where did this person, if they have an education, what institution did they graduate from? I wish the regular census schedules had that on every state that I research, but they don't. It's only on this year. And I was so excited to see someone from the Shinnecock community in 1910 who was a graduate of Hampton. This person, this is uh, 1910, so they probably attended the Indian school at Hampton Institute. So that was a real treat just to see that. There was a similar document in 1900, except in 1900, they didn't ask for the sort of tri-racial background. They asked only one question in terms of the ethnic breakdown, was, quote, whether the person was mixed blood, and if they were, well, how much white are they? So if they were black and Indian, they didn't report it. That was just the way that census was uh, structured for whatever reason, and of course we know the census can change from year to year. What's interesting, of course, that's 1900, and we know that we have that 20-year uh, gap in the census. Well, it's everywhere, and because of the, the lack of the 1890 census, so we go back to 1880. Look at 1880, and you see coming out of San Jacinto County in Texas, a family Everyone is, well, almost everyone is enumerated as Indian. You see a man whose name is Mingo, and you see he was born in Florida. But everyone else is born in Texas, including his wife and children. And you see a son-in-law who is not enumerated as Indian. He's enumerated as mulatto, which is interesting. Again, another blended family. This is the state of Texas. 
Again, now this is 1880, so we're in the 19th century now with that. That's right. Yeah. So you can really. You were going to say? Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm listening. What is, oh, okay. Um, so it's fascinating to take a look at that. And then, of course, another document from 1870. People think, okay, well, they, you know, they didn't capture Native Americans. Well, they did. Uh, Giles County, Tennessee. There's a family that's listed there, uh, and I put a little mark there so people can take a look at it when they go to the blog. And you'll see someone is in a community surrounded by people who are white and black, and in the middle there's this man, Jesse Jones, who was enumerated distinctly as Indian. Now, it doesn't say what kind of Indian, but it just says he's clearly not white, and he's clearly something different from black. The bottom of that page where this gentleman's name appears was an interesting notation. I've never seen it in um, on a regular basis in other communities, but at the bottom there's a footnote, and it says written by hand, one male Indian counted as colored. In other words, well, he wasn't going to be counted as white, so they counted him as yeah. colored, but still enumerated as a person who was of Native ancestry. And it's something that I would just say in general, study your community and look at the pages where, uh, especially if you think, oh, I can't find certain people, go through every page in the county. Go through everything and take a look and see what is there. Well, I think that's some excellent advice for everyone because what you're pointing out to us is that the information is there, but you do have to look for it. And and I, and I appreciate you giving us these various examples because now for everyone who's in the chat, and I'm telling you, we have a lot of folks in the chat tonight, we do have oh. some work to do, and that is going back and taking another look, especially when you're talking about the blended families. It's just something that we <laughs> need to take a look at. Well, Angela, we're going to take a quick break and then come back and continue this discussion, okay? Just a really good. good break. All right. National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. 
Also, all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. You can also find the archive shows on my website, JeannieBRoots.com. Well, you have been listening to author, genealogist, and African Roots podcaster, Angela Walton Raji. And she has given us already a good idea of where we can find information on Native Americans and blended families and communities in the United States Census, a place that perhaps many of us may not have even looked as hard as we should have. So, Angela, we're back, and I just want to ask you just some more questions. Now, can you just give us an idea of some pitfalls to conducting Native American research? Oh, certainly. I know that um, I, I've met many people who've tried to find something in the family, um, you know, and, and they've heard the, maybe the story that an ancestor was of Native ancestry, and they've looked and they haven't had much success. And, and sometimes the motivation is different. And I have had individuals who contacted me, and I found out that their motivation is not always to find the family story. And as I began to speak and interact a little bit more, I find out that they're part of the gold rush. And uh, what I mean by that, uh, I'll just simply give the advice to follow the trail of names, names of your ancestors, and avoid the search for gold. And I say gold sort of as an analogy, primarily because the motivation should be history and the motivation should be a desire to tell the story of the people that you find. But I have many people who will contact me because they want to embark on a Native American research project because they hope they're going to get an Indian scholarship for their child. And others have a belief that, uh, oh, if I can prove some Indian heritage, I'm going to get some kind of Indian money. I don't know if they uh, maybe feel that there's some revenue coming from a casino or something. Um, That's why, so that researcher is kind of following a gold rush. And individuals who usually embark with that as a task and as a goal, they usually end up on a path that puts them on a permanent detour. Uh, They don't find what they're looking for because the gold rush is their motivation. And, um, you know, if you're looking for the story, then you're going to have more success than simply, and and the reason why I say that is that some individuals will try and force data that they find into their family history. And what I mean by forcing data, let's say you have an ancestor whose name is um, Henry Lee Jenkins, and you've heard that Henry Lee Jenkins was whatever uh, from a Native American community, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, well, let me just say, excuse me, I've heard of the Dawes Rose. Let me see if I can go find a Henry Lee Jenkins. And you get there and you find a Henry L. Jenkins. Oh, that must be him. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I'm so excited. And I'm using that as as sort of an example, but it's not an exaggeration. I can give you a real story of a lady who contacted me, and this woman, um, oh, she was so excited she could barely type. She was so nervous. 
and said, I found my ancestors on the Dodge Road. I'm so excited, and oh, I'm so excited, so I know my children now will be eligible for scholarships. I said, okay, tell me about your family. Uh, where do they live? Um, what are their names? Um, do you know any exciting things about them? And she began to talk, and they were from Kentucky. And um, tell me more about this, this particular ancestor. And she told me when so-and-so died and whomever was in the family, and she gave me some years. And I said, oh, okay, so they were born maybe late 1880s perhaps, and they died, it looks as if, um, uh, 1930s or something. And she said, that's about it. Yeah, that's right. And then I shared with her the data from the Dodds Roll, which is not reflecting anyone in Kentucky, but uh, I shared with her, the person you're looking at on the record uh, that you shared with me was two years old when your ancestor was already 20. And mm-hmm. then she added out the difference in geography that, you know, Dawes records, Indian records from Oklahoma don't reflect the whole country. And, but it was the gold rush that had motivated as her for the search of her history as opposed to looking at her family's unique history, coming from an interesting part of Kentucky. And, um, you know, it was something that the gold rush sort of uh, was driving her there. She got into a record set that she had not connected to. And yes. um, that's why yeah, I always point that out. I have another Well, that's a good point. And that's a good point to make also, yes. Well, another point that I like to encourage people to do is to stay focused on the records. You know, standard genealogy methodology is going to take you many wonderful places. And you're going to try and connect every person that you find to the generation that preceded it. You're not going to look at someone in 1920 and then go pull out a record from the 1880s and try and connect them. You want to go to a record that connects them step by step. Sometimes the desire is so strong because people are not staying focused on the records because they will stay focused on physical features of their ancestor. We've all heard the story. An ancestor has high cheekbones. We have heard the story of the grandmother whose hair was so long, and I know you know the rest of that sentence. Oh, yeah. Her hair was so long that she could sit on it. We all know that story. And we hear the references to hair length and hair texture. But, you know, long straight hair is characteristic of people from Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, all parts of Europe, South America, many parts of the world. And people have prominent cheekbones in many ethnic communities, East Africa, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia, other parts of Africa, you see people with prominent cheekbones and no genetic tie to the Americas. And it's most important to understand that racial features, per se, do not provide proof of having Indian ancestry. Stick to standard genealogical methodology and don't focus on the physical features. Focus on the record. I also encourage people to call your ancestors what they were. And 
I know that many people are anxious to sometimes connect to an Indian tribe, but it's very important that you stay focused in terms of keeping or maintaining the integrity of the history of the region, which is why your local history is critical. And one of the basic things, and we'll get to that in a little while, you know, one of the basic ways to find out which group of indigenous people occupied the community where your ancestors are from, study the the history of that county, the history of that region. You will find treaties that were signed. You're going to find the treaties that were broken because almost all of them were broken. But you're going to find the communities with whom they were made, the real communities. So you don't have to join some of these new groups. There are all kinds of groups that people are creating that you'll never find in the records. I'll give you one major tip. Almost everything is about the land. Every conflict is about the land. Treaties were about the land. The trail of tears forcing people out. It wasn't, hey, we think the West is a better climate for you. It's because they wanted the land. Even the fact that people were brought in from another continent against their will, and people were brought in from Africa and enslaved to work the land. And the fact is that you're going to find who the indigenous people were by studying the records that reflect the history of the land. And then you can accurately call your ancestors if they did have contact with people who are from that area, you can call them what they were. And then most importantly, maintain, always maintain the integrity of your research. Avoid invention. You know, your real story of what happened in your family is always better than anything you can invent. And by working to obtain what really happened and studying the records, all the other fantasies are going to evaporate. And what I mean as an example of a fantasy, I've heard people refer to a, a group of people in the Plains states, the Plains nations from the Dakotas. And they'll say, oh, yeah, 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 my great-grandmother was full-blooded, and you can fill in the name of the tribe, whether it's Blackfoot or Lakota or, or, or whatever group it may have been from the Plains tribes. But the person's family is from eastern Tennessee. So, well, wait a minute, <laughs> okay, this, this community of people did not have ties in that part of North America. Well, maybe they came out there and maybe they, they happened to have decided they wanted to leave because too, too many people were settling in. I've heard people just make up a story. And all I say is keep the integrity of your research. Don't invent because the moment you find out what really happened in your family, it's far better than what you can invent. Always maintain the integrity of your research and avoid invention. Well, you know, you mentioned something, and I, I just have to ask you this question. Why do you sometimes have this perception that people are inventing a piece of their history? You mean in terms of, of why is, well, uh, um, in terms of, of 
reflecting on what I was just pointing out, sometimes the story was told to them from someone they loved. Grandma yes. didn't lie to me. Great-grandpa didn't make it up. Well, Grandma may have mm-hmm. repeated what she heard, but what she may have heard may not have been accurate, and your research will confirm that. And it's interesting how some things can be accepted. Oh, I guess it was an error. When you find out that um, uh, maybe an ancestor's age was a little bit older than uh, they always said they were, and you're saying, wait a minute, she always said she was born in, in 1920, but I'm seeing her here, um, uh, or she said she was born in the late 1920s, but I see her in the 1920 census. Well, you kind of get over the fact that maybe, okay, maybe a person uh, was inaccurate or the person who told you that information was not accurate. But for some reason, in terms of answering your question why, some people have almost an emotional, an emotional tie to wanting to define who they are. And mm-hmm. with that emotion, I always point out, first of all, not everyone's going to find the Indian in the family. Everyone's not going to find many things in the family. But it's still, it's okay. Number one, I always want to point out that all of your research and all of the ethnicities, regardless of how they got there, and I know many people are uncomfortable saying, oh, the European got there because of some slave master uh, who may have taken advantage of an ancestor, which may be true, but all Mm -hmm. of it is still part of what brought you here today. And none of you, you can't take any sense of blame for what any of your ancestors did. And evil, that, that, that evil person who may have taken advantage of someone in one generation, it doesn't mean that all of that person's ancestors were evil people. All of the ethnicities that comprise who you are are worth exploring. And if you don't find one, it's also okay. Having all African ancestry is just as wonderful as not having all African ancestry. And I think sometimes it is um, a sense of, wow, maybe uh, I'll feel that, that, that something a part of me was not part of an oppressed community. But your history did not begin with oppression. And I think once we realize that our history didn't start with pain, our history didn't start with the civil rights movement. Our history did not start with being enslaved. Now, the stories from that history, that's what we're doing as genealogists. We yes. are trying to right. capture those wonderful stories. But our histories go back farther than probably any of us will be able to find. But that's okay because the journey is still worthwhile. And right. all of the if you're looking for the Irish ancestor and don't find them, that's okay. If you're looking for the first African in America and don't find that person, that's okay. The journey is still worthwhile. And if you're looking for the Native ancestor and don't find them, that's also okay. And I yes. think it's a matter of being comfortable with who you are. And um, I don't know if that answers the question why, but. Yes, yes, it did. And I, so I want to just thank you for, just for sharing some of the pitfalls to conducting Native American research. Well, Angela, I want to take you back to the census because we do have two questions about the census that require a little more clarification. 
So one of the oh, questions okay. is, so in 1910, if we go uh-huh. to the inn and there is no Indian census, can we assume there were no Native Americans in the area or just that the separate census wasn't done? Okay. Uh, there was sort of that in sort of two ways. First of all, um, particularly those who absolutely know because they're still living in the community and the Native community that the family's part of is still there and it's still intact. Um, a lot of times you'll go through the census and say, gee, I can't find these folks. What? Wait a minute. I know they were there. They're still here. And you don't find them. Well, when you get to the end of the census and you know what it's like, um, and I started doing uh, research when you had to crank the microfilm, and I still think there's value. I like to take beginners to the National Archives or to any facility where they can actually crank the microfilm because that way you learn how the census is actually organized. But uh, when you get to the end of the, of the county and it says at the bottom, this ends the enumeration of whatever, Robeson County or whatever the name of the county is, and you go back to the beginning and you scroll again and you don't find who you're looking for. When you get to that page where it says this is the end, keep cranking the microfilm because the next image is the beginning of the Indian census. It's always at the very end of the county where the standard population census schedules appear. So when you see this is the very end of such and such county, keep scrolling because you'll get to the beginning of the Indian census. Now, you asked a question. Um, If you don't find that there is an Indian census, does that mean that there was no documentation of Native people in the community? It does not mean that. But what often has happened in a community in 1910 where they didn't put people in uh, the special or put them on those special pages that say, you know, Indian population. Oftentimes that happened because in that particular community, the Indian population was scattered. It was still there in many places and in many cases, but it was scattered. So being scattered meaning you go down this road and everybody's not Indian. You, know, you may have eight white families then have one Indian family. Uh, or then you have a lot of uh, African-American families and then you have one Indian family. What happens in that case is that people who were enumerated as Indian in the census, if they were enumerated that way, and a lot of people think, oh, they had a special code for Indians. Not really. Um, they were enumerated but they just put them in the standard census schedule. So I often say go back and do a line-by-line search. And if there was a community, and keep in mind, people were part of the community where they lived. And you were known in the community for what you were. And yes, that's um, true. So, you know, it really, you know, people will say, oh, well, they were, you know, hiding, you know, from, from somebody. Well, they weren't hiding from anyone in 1910. And um, you do find Indian people on the standard census schedules, particularly in those communities or where one Indian was living in a household uh, with other people of another ethnic group, and they will still identify that person as Indian in the census. So I, I hope I answered that clearly. 
Right. Now, there's uh, there's another question, and, and Family Tree Girl, you may want to restate it, but I'm going to state it the way you've written it. Is the dislike between blacks and Native Americans only, uh, hold on one second, only between the five tribes, or can you say something about that? The five civilized oh, tribes. And, and Family Tree that. Girl, you can restate it if, if I'm not stating it the way you've sure. written it. Right. I, I think she may be talking about some hostile feelings that may be there. Um, and some of the hostilities, you've got to understand, people are part of the world in which they live. And the same way with people who went west in the, in the relocation in the 1830s. They were Southerners. And uh, they were not just, quote, unquote, civilized. They were Southerners. And uh, particularly the five tribes that were removed, uh, they had suddenly become, in many ways, acculturated to the, the, the lifestyle of the newcomers, including farming as a way of life, including Christianity, many particularly in, in certain tribes of Presbyterians. You'd be surprised how many pre- Presbyterians uh, who are Choctaw in, in southern Oklahoma and have been for, for two centuries, uh, even, even longer. And um, so as Southerners, they took Southern attitudes with them. Now, it does not mean that there was no contact or people didn't have children. Of course they did. People had children in Mississippi and Alabama with their white slaveholders, too. Not necessarily it wasn't always consensual, but it did happen. We understand that. Um, But there were still those feelings that, um, okay, you're a little bit different. Some of those things changed with time, as time passed, but mid-speed up to uh, fast forward to the middle 20th century when the tribes, after having been dissolved uh, with Oklahoma statehood, all of the tribes around the country were given a chance to reorganize. And very quietly, um, what happened in Oklahoma, you had tribes that reorganized, but they kind of whispered among themselves and said, well, let's just cut the freedmen descendants out. Nobody knew until about 15 or 20 years later when people started hearing things about enrollment. And, oh, Grandpa was Cherokee freedman. Let me go enroll. And they found out they were not eligible. And, of course, now uh, you have another situation where there's a government agency now requiring to prove your blood to, you know, your quote-unquote Indian blood. And that's something that actually began over 100 years ago, proving Indian blood. What did I say earlier? It's all about the land, okay? Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. You had to prove uh, the purpose of the Dawes Rolls was to determine who was eligible for land, to give the land in personal parcels of land to people who could prove they were tied to the tribe. And... 14,000 freedmen also got land allotments. They did. They could prove that they were enslaved by someone in the tribe. Okay. But now 100 years later, no land allotment. People have bought, bought land, lost land, have land stolen, and so on. But now, of course, it's not about the land. But the records, when you look at the Dawes records, you see they're applying for land allotments. When you look at the records of the Mississippi Choctaw, you also realize, oh, okay, this pertains to them. You have the Eastern Cherokee. You have 70,000 files, not because there were 70,000 Indians, but because in the early 1900s, the Cherokee Nation sued the United States for compensation for lands that had been lost with the forced removal. As a result, they won their case. 
and it was decided everyone who could prove that they had ties to the tribe would be eligible for a one-time only per capita payment, which amounted to basically $133, which in early 1900, that's a lot of money. And people from all over the United States applied for that, which created that 70000 file application, all of which, by the way, all of these records I'm referring to right now are on fold3.com. But um, the point that I'm saying is that when you read the records, you start to see a line of questioning that appeared. And you don't even see it in early interviews and early records, but suddenly at the turn of the century, individuals were coming in and they're saying, can you prove how much Indian blood do you have? Who do you have ties to? Do people know that you're an Indian? And this concept with money attached to it was now getting embedded in the psyche of Americans. Oh, go prove that you've got some Indian blood. Prove your Indian blood. Suddenly you'll get some money. That's a concept that exists to this day. People assume if they can prove they're Indian, they're going to get some money. And this is something that was pertaining to the, which actually one of the, the agent, Gian Miller, who, of course, now the role is named after him. But you can actually see the applicants who applied and wonderful genealogical data. And I would encourage you, hey, you know, whether they got money, got the money or not, um, it doesn't really matter because the history of the family is embedded in the record. And what are you as the genealogist trying to do? You're trying to tell the story. And I think part of that concept is, and I always tell you, I understand why this record exists. People were not proving their Indian blood just because they wanted to prove who they were and shout it from the mountaintops. The concept was that they were getting paid for land, remember, it's all about the land, and they were getting compensated for lands that had been taken away. Well, that's why this record set exists. And now, you know, 100 years later, you can at least open these files, read the words of your ancestors, and learn so much more. They'll tell you who their parents were, who their grandparents were, and, oh, well, who are you claiming your Indian ancestry from? And... Some of them are fascinating. You'll see. They are fascinating. Oh, my goodness. You know, Angela, you know, we talked about uh, some of the records, and they really provide an excellent history. Even if, I mean, the the point is not that they're trying to prove something. It's just, I mean, they are trying to prove by giving evidence, but the information will go way into your ability to tell the story, which is what you are saying to us. Absolutely. And imagine how many times do you ever wish, oh, gee, I wish I could sit down to my great-grandmother and ask her a couple of questions. Well, you may not, you may be unaware, but there may be a record that pertains to your ancestors. Yes, they may be in the rejected files, but the rejection shouldn't be your focus. The story out of that file is what your focus should be. That's right. And, That's right. Um, you know, it's just something that I would say definitely. By all means, look at that, of course. Yes, yes. Well, Angela, I'm going to give you another break, and we're going to come right back and wrap up the show.
a welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm telling you, we have been listening to Angela Walton Raji. You know what? She's making some great points. You know, the story is in the file. So let's talk about the story. So, Angela, what does it mean when you say research to find and don't research to prove? Okay. Well, I particularly urge people to find the story and to be open to what might appear in the records that you're going to look at. And sometimes, uh, and I can give an example for um, Mississippi Choctaws. We're talking about 7,000 files, 7,000 files. I have no idea how many hundreds of thousands of people are represented. And a lot of people will look and they'll say, oh, I see a surname related to my family. And I see them, what does MCR 225 mean? MCR means Mississippi Choctaw Rejected Files. Oh, they were rejected, and then they won't look. And first of all, I'll say, well, first of all, look at it. You never know what you're going to find. And I will use particularly Mississippi Choctaws as um, an example because this is the one record set where I have seen multiple generation hand-drawn pedigree charts embedded in the files. And some of those files, 70, 80, 90 pages, 100-plus pages in length, and page after page of pedigree charts uh, showing another branch of the family or what have you. So if you don't say, and, and, and what I'm saying in answer to your question, research to find and research to prove, the person who's researching to prove might say, oh, they were rejected. Mm, I guess I can't prove I'm Indian, and they won't look. But the person yes. who wants to find if they open that record, regardless of the outcome of this is an interview that took place 100 years ago, you can't change or alter that, but there's a story in that file. And tell it, create new files. Um, I think one of the questions that came out last summer when we were at the uh, Maggie Institute was when you find a record, ask the question, so what? You know, so what else is there to learn? Well, when you open up some of those records, and this, yes, may be a record that's not going to prove that grandpa was an Indian or great-grandma or whomever, but you're going to find so much, and you're going to have so many answers and so many examples of so what else. You're going to find so what? Oh, my gosh, look at this. So what? Oh, my gosh, look at that. The data is Absolutely incredible. Um, reasons, the reason why I also say research to prove and not research to find, the example that I gave of the lady who had contacted me, whose folks were from Kentucky, and she was going to prove that there was an Indian in the family no matter what. And she uh -huh. went and she found the name and she said, this is the ancestor is going to get my child a scholarship. She was putting the wrong person in the wrong state who wasn't even the right age to fall in sync with her family history. She was trying to prove it so hard 
she reached and found a common name, but a name that matched her ancestral story to try and force it to, to fit because she wanted to prove that this branch of the family had ties to an Indian tribe. As opposed to looking at an incredible history, this family had ties to Camp Nelson. Several people related to this family were freedom fighters. Oh, my gosh, do you know what they had to go through to enlist in the U.S. color troops in the middle of the Civil War? They freed themselves in this huge contraband community. That story is incredible. But this story was almost missed because she was trying to prove and she wasn't trying to find the story that was Mm -hmm. there. So that's why I always – and I know it's hard when you're looking at these records – and you'll see that, oh, yeah, they have to prove that they're Indian before they get the money. You know, the money wasn't much, and uh, this was a one-time circumstance in early 20th century. You as a Mm -hmm. researcher in the 21st century should research to find what is there and then to tell that story of what you have found. Not to prove, because you may grab another person with a name to try and make the story fit what you want it to be. And you don't That's right. want because you've detoured. You've, you've, you've lost the integrity of your work and of your research. Right. And I see a message coming from True Lewis, and she, she said, well, she lets her documents speak for themselves. It's always a story and what you found. Well, Amen. There's a question. I agree with Yes, there's a question directed to you, Angela. How did okay. what you found compare to what you were told? Well, um, it didn't differ in a dramatic way because I knew my great-grandmother was Choctaw. She spoke Choctaw. She taught me a few words in Choctaw when I was a little girl. Uh, when her brother, I only saw him one time, her brother came to visit her, Uncle Joe, and when they wanted to have their conversation, and I was trying to hang out on the porch with them, um, and this is funny because she was smoking a pipe with him, every, a little corncob pipe, and they were both dipping snuff and talking and whatever. And when I would come around, I couldn't understand them because they were speaking in their native tongue, which was Choctaw. And so this was nothing that was new to me. I, I was unique. I had that history, and I knew it. So, but to me, even though she was speaking another language, to me, she was just Nana. She wasn't an Indian. Don't forget, you know, I grew up in the 50s. I saw the Cowboy and Western programs, and I couldn't really see how this sweet little lady, to me, she's just, you know, like everybody else's grandma, um, which we, we all knew we were black, and we lived in a black community, but, oh, yeah, yeah, she's Indian or she's Choctaw, whatever that meant. But I thought everybody had some grandma who was something um, different. But it still didn't mean that she wasn't black to me. And she was the sweet little black lady who made me sip, uh, have a little sassafras tea when I wanted some, and I could sip out of her cup sometimes. She, so that was not a surprise. What did surprise me was, when I found the record, and I remember sitting at the National Archives the day in May, it was a Monday after the National Ox Conference of 1991, and that was when the Ox Conferences used to be in Washington, D.C. Uh, there was a hotel in Southwest D.C., and I'd gone to that conference. And it was the following Monday, and I'm sitting there at the archives, and when I 
found the record that had their name, I just kept staring at it, and that was just stunning. Because what shocked me, number one, I was excited to find their name, but I remember gasping, going, and then I kept looking. I didn't understand. I see Choctaw Nation, Friedman Roll, and then I saw another column that had me stunned because this story had never survived family history. It said, the column said, slave of Emmeline Perry. What? What? Slave of Emmeline Perry. Remember, I had no knowledge of slavery in Indian territory. Yeah, I know she's Indian. It's here, Choctaw Nation. I have records from the family Bible. Choctaw Nation stamped on it. I'm looking at Sam, great-grandpa Sam, slave of Jim Davis, and there's Sally, slave of Emmeline Perry. That stunned me because I had to learn why am I looking at Nana's name and it's saying that she was a slave of someone? That was the one thing that surprised me. At that point, mm-hmm. once I learned, yes, there were slaves, yes, Indians, Indians had slaves in Indian territory, it happened. Uh, okay, then I was, I've was i been on a roll ever since, and that's been a, what, a 23, 24-year journey, and I'm still on it. So, but, yes. um, yeah. The one doc that was the one 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 element that surprised me learning about the history of enslavement of the Choctaw part of the family. Oh yes. Well, we have another question, and they want you to go back and say a little bit more about the Dawes role. Oh, okay, okay. Well, there are a lot of different kinds of Indian records that you're going to find, and with the Dawes rolls, we're talking primarily we're talking Oklahoma. First of all, understand that. And we're talking about three major parts to the records. Now, people say the dog's roll. That's just a tiny portion. The roll itself is a 694-page document of a bunch of people's names. It doesn't tell you anything but names. But that's a tiny portion of the record set. There are three parts. There's one part called an enrollment card. Then there's a section called the enrollment or the application jacket. This is actually, it's a file folder. When they're saying jacket, they mean a folder, like a manila folder. And uh, then the final role was who went through the process of being interviewed and whoever was approved, their name was put on the final role. So uh, the enrollment card, and all of these, uh, in these three parts, enrollment card, application jacket, and final role. They fall into all five tribe categories. Now, I want to say something before I go into those categories. The application jackets, they are amazing. They can be as few as one or two pages in a folder, or you can have 18 or 90 pages in a folder or more. You will have an interview taken under oath. You will find memoranda. You will find birth affidavits. Sometimes you find marriage certificates. You will find death records. And this is essential because this is before Oklahoma statehood, before there was an Office of Vital Records. Here's a record from 1899 with someone's death record or someone's birth record there. So it's wonderful to find that. Now, for each of the tribes, they are also subdivided into categories. There are the records of those who are Indians by blood, whatever that means. But records by blood, and they are indicating that this person is considered uh, native and how native are they. 
and sometimes you'll see half, sometimes you'll see one thirty second, and so on. But anyone who was considered an Indian by blood, sometimes they didn't even speak English and had to have an interpreter there for that interview, and you see that in the file. Then you have the records known as the Freedmen records. The Freedmen records represent the men and women who were once enslaved by the tribes and their children. And then you have another record set, records of intermarried whites. These are records of people who married Indians, who came in, who were considered now part of the tribe, but they were a spouse. Uh, and this only pertained to white citizens who married a citizen of the tribe. If you were black and from Texas and married a Chickasaw freedman, you were not considered an intermarried citizen. But one thing is important to know. Everyone whose name is on the roll, even if it was a baby, everybody, freedmen, everybody, everyone got a land allotment, even the children. Every single person whose name is on that 694-page record got a land allotment. Um, there is another category besides the records by blood, the freedmen, intermarried whites. There is another subset of records called minors, newborns. And the minors and newborns records are basically the same. These were people, the interviews cover the year 1898 to 1914. And they began closing the rolls in 1906. Statehood is just around the corner in 1907. But many people who were interviewed in 1898, but a year later had a baby. So in 1906, they're closing the rolls, but people had had children. And so they said, oh, we've got to add these children who are also eligible. So they put them on a roll called newborn, or they put them on a roll called minors. And it just depends on which tribe it was, what they called it. But those are categories. And then there are people who applied but never got approved, and they're called doubtful records. And they're, or eventually they resolved it and decided either to admit them and give them a land or to reject them. All of those records are available, and all of these records are on fold three. Uh, and the one exception, Mississippi Choctaw records are embedded within the Dawes Rolls, and they form a separate category as well. That's one set. That's just Oklahoma Dawes records. You have the Rolls of the Eastern Cherokee, also on Fold 3. You have the Guion Miller Roll, which is the index to the Rolls of the Eastern Cherokee, and, uh, and those applications that go with it. The index is on the NARA website, uh, archives.gov, and you just go to the search box and type in Guion Miller, G-U-I-O-N, Miller, roll the index. You can find it there, and then you can go to Fold 3 and look at those application files. It's fascinating. There is a special Indian role for Eastern Cherokee, uh, 1924 Baker role. That's the role that they use now as their base role for membership if you're applying for um, membership in the Eastern Cherokee Nation. But there's one thing I do want to say also, and this is something I think is very, very important. I hope that, and this is another uh, pitfall, I guess. I probably should have mentioned it there. Um, and this is something I really think that I, I hope the genealogy community takes note of this, the professional community. Because sadly, many times you get on a website, and I've seen this on professional websites, uh, very reputable scholars and researchers, but for some reason they tie up the concept of documenting Native American ancestry 
with tribal enrollment. You've got to keep them separate because tribal enrollment is political. You have tribes in California today that are going to court, individuals who are they're disenrolling members. And for whatever reason, they have issues. That's their tribal issue. It's a political struggle. Enrollment is political, but your history is there and it's waiting for you to discover and tell. But sadly, you go on many, many websites. Oh, need to document your Native American history? Oh, click this link. And by the way, want to join the tribe? Click this link. Whoa, slow down. Because in many cases, you're not going to be a member of the tribe even though you have a family that has a file, and that file, all those pages are just waiting for you to open. But what happens is, and why I mention this, is because for whatever reason, and the issues are so political, who's eligible to be a member today? Who's not eligible to be a, be a member anymore? Uh, many people, and many of them are not very good reasons. Some of them are biased. Some of them, one group or one clan doesn't like another, and this clan is in power, or one group doesn't like the racial makeup of another portion of the tribe, and, and there are multiple reasons. But the fact is that many people get caught up in the the political situation of tribal politics that they miss their history. And yes, I'm biased. My bias is going after your history. And it is something that many people, they'll say, oh my gosh, this is so horrible. Can we do anything? Well, the BIA, they, they have these rules in place. What can we do? And suddenly it becomes a political battle and your history somehow gets forgotten. And um, so it's, it's really something that I think you have to be willing to stay focused, stay focused, stay focused, because many genealogy websites are going to have all this information, and you're going to see a link right there. And enroll in the tribe, and, you know, wow, some tribes will never admit you for whatever reason, but that should never stop you from going after your history because once you have your history, you're already empowered. And so it's something that is very, very important. So I, I do feel that I have to, to mention that. Um, in addition, I, I do want to mention the if anyone has any ties to Oklahoma, there was life, just as I said, our history did not begin with being oppressed. Our history didn't begin with Jim Crow. Our history didn't begin with slavery. And Native American history didn't begin with, with um, some tribal roles that were created by the U.S. government. And African Native American history didn't start in Oklahoma with the Dawes Rolls. There were roles before that. You have the Wallace Roll of 1890 for Cherokee freedmen, the Kern Clifton Roll of the 1890s for people who were not captured in the Wallace Roll, Cherokee freedmen. 1896, there's a Choctaw Roll, including freedmen, the former slaves who were enumerated there. The 1885 Choctaw Chickasaw Freedmen Roll. 1880, authenticated Cherokee census roll, including everyone, intermarried whites, freedmen, rolls, uh, Indians by blood. You have the 1867, right after the Civil War, the Dunn Roll. And another record set that I haven't even mentioned, military records. So, and military records reflecting Native people. And 
embedded. We know the wonderful history of the United States Colored Troops. Take a look at the 79th and the 83rd, who at one point were the first and second Kansas Colored. Well, the first and second Kansas Colored came straight out of Indian Territory. They were Creek and they were Cherokee. Take a look at them. It's amazing history. And there were black soldiers in the first, second, and third Indian Home Guards, the only Union Army regiments of Indian troops because the other 20-plus Indian regiments in the Civil War were Confederate. Wonderful, wonderful records. And, of course, always use the census and don't forget the land records because it's all about the land. Well, I'm going to take it in another direction for a second. There are many groups online that, though they Mm -hmm. say they are Native American, their members Mm -hmm. are mostly African American. Now, what does Mm -hmm. that mean? Well, I think that these are individuals who've heard the stories that many of us have heard. These are individuals who've heard, you know, and again, we know Grandma didn't lie, and Grandma was not maliciously making up any lies, okay? But I think that what has happened is that many individuals are embracing, and again, there's nothing wrong with expressing your culture, whatever your culture and your ancestry may be. But again, I urge individuals to study not just their oral history, but to study the local history so you get it right. And what I mean by that, A lot of times you'll see individuals who are in various organizations and who will even tell you with a lot of of conviction and and pride, which is certainly fine, that they're part of, of XYZ Native community. But you'll see them at an event, maybe at a cultural event, and they're wearing attire that's not reflecting the traditional attire of people of that particular community. They're wearing attire that's reflecting the Plains Nations, and I understand where some of that comes from. As I said, you know, I grew up in the 50s and never could figure out how my great-grandmother was connected with the Indians I saw on television, which we know that that's a distortion. We know that. But um, sometimes that's the image that people have, that uh, women always wore the long braids and always had the buckskin, and the little band going around, you know, the head with the feather in the back. Well, are you sure that's the way Native people dress if your people were from the Woodlands tribes? And when I say Woodlands, I mean um, the lands east of the Mississippi. Historically, did they really dress that way? And when people will start to look at the histories, sometimes the representation of the history can be, not always, but it can be sometimes uh, something that's reflecting a Hollywood image. And when we know what Hollywood does to history. We all know that. But um, it is interesting to uh, see that, yes, there are a lot of groups where you'll find they're Native groups, but a lot of the members are of African ancestry. I can only say, you know, I have no problem with you celebrating whatever your, your cultural ancestry is. But always understand, and I hope that that person has just as much passion for their Africanness. I hope that their celebration is not at the expense of their 
other aspect of who they are, other other aspects. One of the things I feel that's very important, not and especially many of us do come from blended histories, blended backgrounds, blended ethnicities. There's not one culture that is better than another, and the African side is just as important, just as critical for us particularly because we know so much of that story was stolen and and just as critical to find and, again, research to find and not to prove. And uh, sometimes individuals are maybe captured with proving something maybe um, by an affiliation with an organization, and that's okay too. But uh, it is important to value all of our ancestries equally. Well, I'm looking at, first of all, there's a question about Native American admixture and DNA. And I pulled up a a source, and it's actually the roots, and it was something uh, that Dr. Gates posted. And they listed the amount of Native American ancestry or admixture that was picked up by each of the DNA companies. Ancestry DNA reported that they picked up about 2% of the those who've been tested, 2% Native American. Family tree DNA, 1.7%. 23andMe, 0.6%. And National Genographic, 1.9%. And so the question is, for those people who don't pick up anything, what's your take on that? Because that they get very upset that they don't see any Native American ancestry. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. One of the things that's very important is to understand that there always has to be a control group or a control population in any type of testing. And there have not been many, I will not say any, but there have not been as many people from Native communities who have voluntarily taken DNA tests to make a sound comparison. So, uh, and in fact, in certain tribes, it is even forbidden for the members to just, you know, no, we're not going to go and give us kind of samples. We're just not going to do it. I remember on one of the programs, I don't remember if, if it was um, either Who Do You Think You Are or it could have been maybe one of the programs uh, with Dr. Gates. I can't recall. But it was on um, one of the, the genealogy TV programs. And there was a woman who was from a Native community in, in one of the Plains Nations tribes. And she refused to take the DNA test and said, no, I've spoken with my elders and, and I'm not going to take it. Now, all that, that was her own personal choice or maybe the choice of people in her community. But my point being that there are not hundreds of thousands of Native American DNA samples to make sort of, I guess, a large um, – statement across the board because so few have taken the test. Now, um, I think it is important to also understand that there are a lot of ethnic communities. What? I don't even know if anyone could put a number. There are over 500 federally recognized tribes. That's not to count the other tribes that are not, um, uh, you know, 
federally recognized, but they still may be communities that are intact, native communities. With all of that, it is curious to how some statements on DNA native ancestry can be um, declared, I'll say it that way, because I'm sure a community where the people have lived in Long Island for centuries in Suffolk County as we know it now, Shinnecock, they're going to have a very different probably haplogroup and probably DNA um, composition than someone who is Lakota Sioux, and uh, both of whom are, are indigenous people. And if there have, you know, we're talking about Indians as if there's a big broad paintbrush and um, it's not quite that way. And I don't think there's just been enough of a population. And I would just simply say, well, for me, follow the paper trail. <laughs> just stay with the paper <laughs> and tell the story. DNA doesn't tell you the story anyway. It might give you a hint as to something happened back in the line. But uh, follow the stick to the paper story. That's my bias. So. Okay, well, we're going to wrap up the show, and do you have any closing remarks uh, that you would like to share with the group before we talk about what's coming up next? Well, again, I guess it is just very, very important to understand uh, a lot of the records that you're going to use, many of them um, came out of an issue over land, and different people have... Uh, you know, made certain statements over the years, and you'll find them in various files and records. And so many times uh, the battle was about the right to live on the land or the right to live someplace on the land or to claim some new land. And to just keep that in mind to, yes, follow the paper trail. And basically for me, Stick was trying to tell the story. And especially if you're looking for the land and all of this is about the land, you're going to find an incredible story in your history. Thank you so much. And I am just, I have enjoyed listening to the show, and you have made some excellent points. Well, let me tell you all what's happening next week. Well, Please join me on Monday. That's right, this Monday, February 3rd at 3 p.m. Eastern for a discussion with author and genealogist Emily Alessino for a discussion of her new book, Genetic Genealogy, The Basics and Beyond. Well, I just want to say to everyone, good night and thank you so so much, Angela Walton Raji. And remember, your ancestors left footprints, the footprints to tell the story. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. Now, I would like to encourage you to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji tomorrow. And I always tell people that. And, Angela, I really want people to listen to your African uh, Roots Podcast tomorrow. And also Thanks. Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. 
This show is sponsored by, hey, me, Bernice, BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. Good night, and I look forward to you joining me on Monday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night.